You are listening to an interview with Axel Killian and Sigrid Adriensens. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. And so as I was saying, this is a, a recording that we're doing for Attention, which is the Princeton audio journal for architecture. Um, and this issue is focused on formalisms or forms. Uh, and what we're doing is we're talking to a bunch of different people that have been involved uh, in architecture and the surrounding discipline, disciplines uh, and have varying ideas about what form is uh, for architecture, how it's used, how it's generated, uh, created, etc. Uh, so we thought we'd talk to you guys because you both have, um, have a very interesting take, I think, and, and uh, form finding in general is sort of an interesting uh, and relatively new idea that I think is slowly bleeding into architecture. Um, but I think architects in general still maintain like sort of an older idea or different idea of form. Uh, so before we start tackling that, if you don't mind sort of just giving us a brief intro of like who you are and name and blah, blah, blah. I'm Axel Killian, assistant professor in Princeton teaching uh, computational design. My take on form finding is uh, ultimately to go beyond uh, the pure geometric <clears throat> aspects. Uh, of course, most of the work I've done is operating on a geometric basis, but I think to me in design, form finding is not, uh, cannot start at the geometric level. It starts actually at a conceptual level, so it's a much harder challenge to translate that into algorithmic or any, any autonomous let's say, design algorithm, but the conceptual finding is just as obviously just as important or even more important than the formal one. And so for me, form finding is more of a steering of form, if you will, <coughs> steering it towards, uh, I guess, a meaningful conflation between the concept and, um, let's say, physical and formal and also performative aspects. It's just that it is a very difficult uh, thing to implement holistically. So to me, it's important that from the perspective of design to think of the whole impetus more like the whole apparatus more as a design uh, model or model of design, which is not a mock-up, but, but is a, a theoretical construct that includes <coughs> uh, all aspects that uh, steer design or influence it um, and also does not pretend that there's such a thing as a clean computational process and then the other stuff, but acknowledge that the human input is just as important as the autonomous sort of externalized algorithmic <coughs> version of, of the, the concepts, but discuss it as a model which includes all components. Um, so as maybe more progress is being made in implementing these things as autonomous processes, we may get to a more holistic understanding of conceptual sort of finding um, through through design, but currently the algorithmic ones, at least the ones I've done, are more along the lines um, of existing algorithmic things like particle springs, etc. <clears throat> but uh, many other studies go go further. But yeah, I'm not claiming that these are implementable at this point. Uh, my name is Sigrid Adriansis. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Princeton University. I'm a structural engineer and designer, and also researcher and educator. Uh, a lot of my work and research is focused on the development of uh, form finding and optimization techniques for force modeled systems. So these are, uh, for example, um, large shells or uh, suspended systems that could be used for sports stadia or bridges. Um, uh, 
before I became an academic, I worked in practice, and so I uh, built and designed a number of those um, bridges and shells. Well, you kind of touched on this as well, Axel, when you said that form is existing. You think of it more in terms of a conceptual um, idea that you work with. How is it different, you think, than perhaps other aspects of engineering that deal more with sort of calculated, or for you, Sigurd, as well, like more calculated, quantitative um, medium in which, which you're working? How do you think form finding is different? Is it much more so about the materials that you're manipulating, the forces, and how does equilibrium play into this? Um, in the end, if it's more of a qualitative assessment? So, I mean, for me, it's the, the divisions are just historic ones because there's limitations. So if you want to quantify, you need a model for doing that. <clears throat> so structural engineering has been due to the benefits you get from it at the forefront of that, right, in through the last, whatever, 150 years or so, to develop quantifiable models for approximating and abstracting force flows and material relationships. I'd be these, these are very crude. Right? They work good enough to, to be used, right? but they're nowhere close to um, representing as any model at, uh, what is actually going on in the physical construct. Um, and you see that also, for instance, in the more recent interest again in active bending systems, which have been shut out out of the sort of structural like um, uh, static kind of calculation world um, where basically deter deterministic structures dominated because those were the ones you could calculate. Um, so I think that's um, softening again because the models are expanded uh, to include other aspects, dynamics which usually either ignored or suppressed by dimensioning or choices of materials or choices of load conditions. So I think <clears throat> that is true not just for structures but also for how we think of uh, the motivations to even come up with a form, right? So that's what I was trying to say before, right? If you think of form finding as radical, I mean, think of concept finding that then leads to a, even a choice of working on a particular concept to be put into form, right? So to me, is that's like a, a sort of a, a sequence of things, right? And uh, form finding has sort of been stuck to some degree in a stylistic sort of look-alike of the Freyotos and Gaudi-esque sort of type things, as in if it's catenary, then it must be form finding, right? But a post and beam structure is just as form found as anything else. Right? It's just that the the the, the criteria are different, right? Uh, so I think we just have to free it from the notion of efficiency, or sort of uh, minimized material, uh, or particular mechanisms like, such as hanging chains, and, and acknowledge that form finding is design, right? Ultimately, so we have to I think allow for hybrid solutions or basically continuous solutions across these different. Uh, implementation and not segregate, se separating them and saying a shell is a form fun thing and a post and beam thing is something other, a rational construct. It isn't. It's it's followed by the exact same principles, right? It's just that you include moment resistance, for instance, into the allowable set of responses. Mm -hmm. but, but to some degree, I think that in, um, say, at least in the tradition of, of form finding within engineering, and this is again to my understanding, um, the, the focus is always on the finding. Right, the focus is on on like uh, f like the the as you were saying like finding um, sort of a, a technique or a concept uh, and generating, whereas um, you know the focus in architecture is form as geometry. Uh, so so I think that's where I would sort of draw the distinction. Whereas uh, I think like yes, if a post and beam system is uh, potentially a form found system. But is, is, is it treated as such, or is it treated just sort of as, here is a design, and now, like, 
sort of make it happen. Uh, so with, with form finding, at least again to my understanding, like the, the idea isn't like make it happen. It's it's first like this can happen, right? Mm-hmm. So is that does that hold true? Do you think? Yeah, uh, I think with um, form finding and also if we include optimization techniques, I think people might think that only one solution uh, comes out. But I think that the way that these form finding techniques can be used, they can be used to actually develop. Um, ideas or develop design alternatives and so I think that is um, how designers use these techniques right so you can use it to you know you can press the button and one thing comes out but you can actually use them to steer your design towards something and of course I think your question as to you know for one set of boundary conditions and one type of material one shape comes out but you can manipulate uh, the shape and I think that is the real art or the real craft of using these techniques to generate uh, different kinds of design that satisfy different criteria which often cannot really um, be captured in those algorithms that you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, but then would there be a way to take, uh, say, a pre-existing form, mm-hmm. say designed by an architect on whatever yes. software, and attempt to find mm-hmm. that firm? form using various techniques or is it right so I, th- I think that that's maybe not such an interesting approach to take to after the fact that this has been developed kind of see whether it's good but for example what uh, uh, Sasaki does you know he works with uh, Ito and, and, mm-hmm. and so and they the way that that works is they come up with some idea of a geometric shape and then he starts to optimize that using um, you know, optimization techniques and sensitivity analysis um, and uh, basically there I think it's a dialogue between the engineer and the architect to see how the shape is evolving so you can start with some I think preconceived notion of geometry and then start form finding or optimizing that so the you know there are a number of projects like that the, like the uh, Rolex uh, Learning Center the Tsushima Art Museum they've all been started with some geometric shape or some idea of what they should look like and then it's further developed to further enhance the structural performance. But also, um, I do think there's something <coughs> to the notion of that uh, a form, formal intent is just as important as a mm-hmm. like a preconceived optimization thing, right? because uh, you could take a, that as a constraint just as everything else, just as a material constraint is, is one. Right? So Brendan Clifford, in one of the research seminars, developed um, a catenary uh, based form finding technique where we where he allowed to basically give a, ge- uh, a gestural input of an inside curve mm-hmm. of an inside um, uh, formal yeah, end state he wanted to achieve and then had the algorithm generate the actual uh, compression only arc equivalent in response to that asymmetric loading but it basically created the compression arc and then the respondent weight distribution that needed to be added to the top to make this stand right so you could say this is, uh, is a great example right, of a really yeah, dumb way of making things much more massive than they need to be. Right? But I prefer that to basically making a catenary arc right. or a post and beam and then hanging a false ceiling underneath right? as a way of at least approaching it, in a sense, as a linked kind of set of intents. Right? You can respond to that by seeing, okay, my intent has that result in this model of optimization. Right? Maybe I switch the model of uh, optimization right, to something else. Maybe I switch the material understanding. Maybe the model is not good enough. Right? Could there could there could be other things like a post and beam. Right? So one of the implementations I've done was basically introducing also 
moment resistance as a selectable entity, right? And it's interesting how the catenary arch then, if you add selectively add moment resistance, you can turn it into basically fluidly into an approximate post and beam structure, right? And you realize it's actually just as dialable as anything else, right? So I think our understanding of form finding and its formal consequences is dominated by the limited implementation and abstractions that have dominated based on physical form findings and mm -hmm. dominated the field, and that has ingrained together with a sort of moral um, uh, position on the sort of uh, minimization of material use, which is very much the southern German and southern, I guess, sort of Swiss, Austrian, German engineering school that has dominated the discourse, right? But um, I think it's not helpful to do this as a black and white thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and basically just devise between a good and like a bad, but more think about the intentions, right, and the consequences and what trade-offs you can make, right? Because there's trade-offs always, right? A great optimal sort of minimal shell is not optimal in many regards for the architectural um, for architectural usage, right? So either you compromise largely on on its on its other aspects, right, for the sake of minimal use of material, or you don't do it at all, which is not very useful either. Yeah. So, but I think even within you know, if you just look from a purely structural point of view, if you do this optimization, and I'm thinking, for example, more of membrane structures like tensile structures. Okay, so you might get structural efficiency in the tensile structure because you have very small cables or you know very thin membrane but then the foundations become very large right so it's not because you're doing form finding of one you know the, the most obvious part that um, that therefore your system is going to be totally structurally efficient and very economic which so how do you feel like it's different therefore from drawing or modeling in addition to that you're working with materials, but as a certain process, is it the way that it informs the construction method? Is it a, a certain foresight that it has um, towards the future of its implementation? Can you just touch on that a bit? Uh, well, so I, I think, because I just brought up uh, pre-stressed membranes, for example, you know, which you can only, uh, well, in the time of Frank Otto, you know, he was making small physical models, but very quickly numerical models developed to do the form finding of this system, because there was People have no idea how to calculate them or what shape they should take. So all these form-finding techniques really started, in engineering at least, really started because you know people want to do these pre-stressed systems. Now, if you develop something uh, out of a membrane, you know this has to be stretched a lot, so it actually becomes bigger than what you would actually cut out of a, fa a flat piece of fabric. So in um, for membrane structures, these techniques of incorporating the construction method, because you know when it's stressed, it's much larger than when it's uh, flat, have already been incorporated since the 70s in, in form finding techniques. So for me, it's kind of interesting to see uh, now in the more rigid structural surfaces, so in the shells, the grid shells that we're seeing, that the aspect of uh, construction is now coming into the generation of the shapes. You know, it's an important part. But um, for me, it's kind of interesting to see that you know uh, now I think there's more an emphasis on these rigid uh, shell and rigid shell systems, and construction considerations are coming into form finding or the optimization. But it's interesting for me to see that already in the pre-stressed membranes, this has been included, and people already talk about this already since the 60s or the 70s. But it's very important for these uh, curved surfaces because you know they need a very specific construction technique. Yeah, the link between let's say drawing or other other forms of expression. I think for me it's important to see any implementation as an externalization of your design intent ultimately, which allows you to explore and discover things, 
without having to constantly carry the cognitive load of seeing the consequences and uh, basically the implications of what you do. And so you may, let's say, implement a hanging chain type model that, that takes the weight of you literally or uh, to constantly like manipulate a, a physical model or guessing a particular consequence of a formal move. Right? But in fact, in, in contrast, you basically informed, constantly informed by the consequences of your, your, your intents while keeping the conceptual construct, which is implemented right, intact. But that's not to take that as a religion right, and say this is the right way, right? What the system does is the right, because the system is just an extension of yourself. Right? So how can you then respond more fluently to things you discover or may not agree with? Right? So I think that's the next stage, which is more the steering of form, which I mentioned before. Right? So going over discovery form in the sense of form finding, oh, the system I've implemented has shown me the truth, right? now I will follow it, right? towards something where I want something and I can't find it in the system, right? Mm -hmm. How do I inform, how do I expand the model, how do I understand, expand the system so it doesn't become an outlier, right? But it's just reflecting that I may miss, miss something in my abstraction of the world, right? Uh, that allows me to incorporate the thing I can't get to or can't find in the current sort of abstraction. Right? So that's what I mentioned before with, let's say, moment systems, right? Or other treatments of material or even other fabrication methods, right? Or a conceptual shift also. What is it I'm trying to do? Right? Mm -hmm. In architecture, it's very common, right? If you want to shelter something, right? Or house something, right? There's uh, like a program and you basically follow that very, very directly, right? But there can also be inventions of shifting how you think of things to be implemented, right? What are the things I need to do, right? Uh, and that's, I think, again, a con like an like instant of steering, the, the sort of conceptual understanding what is at hand, what is, what's the task at hand, right? Um, so I think it's crucial to educate people to basically become uh, not programmers for the programming sense, but, but being capable to express their their sort of cognitive concepts right, into an externalized things to have inter intelligent conversations with these right, um, <clears throat> through let's say other means than just let's say intellectual discussions amongst humans in right, a sense, but also through through um, basically systems that allow you to continue that conversation at a different level of detail right? in a sort of real-time interaction, let's say. Right? Uh, but not as a fixed thing, right? but as a fluent thing, just as the thing you're exploring itself. In terms of different conversations then, um, for instance, in drawing and modeling, I think in the design process you're able to sort of implement different aspects of the design, such as the structural, uh, like, the, like what it just looks like, an aesthetic, um, but also programmatic. Can you talk on how form findings converses with those different sorts of topics in, um, in design, for instance, how it, um, I guess, how, how the, the method of steering the design is um, a steering not only towards fulfilling one certain mm -hmm. aspect, such as like structural integrity, but those other parts? Yeah, I mean, there's one, uh, one uh, attempt is to basically use, let's say, a, a particular solver method uh, as as a unifying platform in a sense, right? So particle springs, for instance, I've had have attempted many times to try very very simplistic versions of that. Right? So examples are that you may really um, express sort of programmatic relations between different elements right? uh, through a force kind of equilibrium system, such that things shuffle around as you know all the springy sort of diagrams, right? But then have these also be uh, the input to, let's say, an enclosure-type uh, shell mm -hmm. thing that responds to the footprint or the, the volumetric changes to that, right? But these are not 
I mean, they're not particularly, they break faster than they reveal any further insights, right? because as you add things to it, mm. the, the, the compromises become just so dominant right, that it's hard to, to think of that, right? But I think it's a, I mean, hard to think of it as a useful thing that gives you more than you can see yourself, right? But I think that will hopefully continue and evolve further, right? That to make more sophisticated versions of these sort of trade-off type uh, mm. tracking um, like I think it's kind of like carriers of thoughts or intents, right? And that you can then push and interact with, right? But I think the to find sort of common, just as geometry has become currently the most dominant sort of exchange platform of design representation, right? Which I think is powerful, but also hugely problematic, right? But if you look at it from the perspective of the Renaissance, right, it's uh, pretty insane, right? How far it has gone, right? Mm -hmm. From pretty much a view construction te technique to one that is pretty much carrying almost like, I mean, pretty much the majority of all formal expressions right, and calculations it's become the clearinghouse, right? And not just in architecture, but in Google, in databases, in, uh, in pretty much um, anything from mechanics to structure engineering to design, et cetera. So geometry has become this powerhouse, so to say, right? But that also has led, I think, the discipline into a bit of a dead end, right? Because Formal representations only capture so much of design intent, right? There's many verbal, there's many non-tangible, sort of non-surface expressible aspects right? that get distorted or outright forgotten. Right? And as, the, I think the, um, as we build and construct more and more on these more and more sophisticated um, strand of design representation, which is a geometric tower, if you will, right? it becomes more powerful, whereas other branches or other subsets, which in the 60s, let's say, were basically... I don't know, it was like you had a discussion maybe five, six hours, right? And you had different concepts, right? And you went away for a week or so and everybody implemented, I wasn't there, but implemented uh, implemented the idea, right? And you had kind of competing systems, right? Mm -hmm. Where let's say an expert system was kind of as sophisticated as a CAD system based on geometry, as sophisticated as, I don't know, a generative poem, poem machine, right? Because you, you would implement and there wasn't any libraries or su mm -hmm. substantial libraries existing, right? So it was kind of built from scratch and they were sort of, equal, not necessarily useful, right, but not as it is now, right, you have like a million person years invested in one thing, right, and then maybe 10 hours of your own work in the other, it's very hard to make comparison between the two, right, um, so I'm not nervous, but I'm most concerned about that uh, massive distortion right, mm -hmm. of what is representable and calculatable, um, and how it influences what you will contribute to, because, uh, yeah, so. So Sigrid, based on that uh, answer that Axel just gave, uh, do you think there's a different, or what would be the dominant mode of, uh, say, exchange within um, the, the form various form-finding groups, right? If, if for architects it's geometry and we hand each other, like, I don't know, mesh or nerd models, um, what, how do you converse? Uh, is it through thinking of, of uh, systems of forces uh, or, or sort of material computation? So I, I guess I should make a little bit of distinction maybe between how most, because you asked me from engineering, so how most engineering officers or engineers would respond to these kind of uh, surfaces. And then I think maybe also as to what my group, and, and because I think um, uh, in engineering training, so when you train to be an engineer, you don't actually learn about these curved uh, systems at all, you know, everything is very two-dimensional, so you learn about columns and beams and frames and trusses and maybe arches. Um, but so I think in general, um, engineers steer away from 
you know, they're afraid of these kind of curved um, uh, surfaces. And this is, I think, very regrettable because, of course, you know, curved, curved surfaces have been around for a long uh, time in the 1920s, 1960s. You know, a lot of curved surfaces were built often by engineers because, you know, these were very efficient ways to span very large uh, distances. And, of course, all the calculations for these surfaces, they were uh, done by hand and they were based on geometric shapes, so they were spheres or barrel vault or uh, something like this. But then we see since the 1960s, and actually it's, it's a bit contradictory because then you have the arrival of finite element uh, analysis, you know, with which you can analyze anything you want. Um, you see that engineers um, use these finite elements to analyze beams and frames and very linear uh, systems. But so I think there are not a lot of engineers in practice now that, um, well, I think most engineers would shy away from um, you know, curved systems, and I think that's partly because they have not touched upon this in, um, you know, when they, when they were taught, you know, they didn't take a course, and if they took a course in shells, it was probably a very analytical course, so lots of calculate, how do you calculate this by hand, um, and secondly, also, I think in engineering, you know, in kind of more standard engineering office, um, you know, they don't have the expertise at all, and I think curved surfaces are, you know, they behave very different from um, beams and, and column systems, and so people perceive them as being really difficult to understand how to work, for example, with membrane stresses. Um, so I think when, you know, an architect wants to design a curved surface, probably he or she would work with an office that has some experience in that, and you, you see, and, and I think that's where I'm going, that there are a number of um, engineering offices uh, that become expert or you know that are that have built a number of these uh, shells and but these are usually also more um, structural uh, engineering design uh, offices so they will you know they also do their own projects they do their own competitions and so I think what you see and I, I see that also with my um, students that the places where they go and work they go and work in offices where there's actually where the, I think the the boundary between the engineer engineer what the engineer and the architect really should do where that's kind of slightly um, fusing um, and so uh, you know my students are they take Axel's classes for example right so they're well versed in uh, rhino and grasshopper and so that is I think there's a new kind of uh, you know, students that are interested, engineers that are interested in that, there's a new kind of um, engineering emerging there. I think that is not just uh, focused on, you know, give me the shape and I will try to make it stand up, but I think there are more engineering um, engineers that are more interested in developing the design and um, what this form is going to be. So I think the, uh, the idea that, you know, the, the form is kind of said before it arrives in the engineering office, I think, you know, if you, if you come with a, you know, a kind of a curved, uh, complex curved shape and you go to an engineering office, I think they would not really be very happy uh, to receive it, either because they don't really know what they're going to do with this, or uh, because I think the engineer wants to be involved a lot earlier uh, to have some influence as to what the shape is going to be. You mentioned a lot of the same. You said curves many right. times. Does, does do a lot of these uh, do, do form finding techniques often come with with say an aesthetic or or is that um, sort of a legacy from uh, sort of 
engineers of the past that, that were working in very material ways and producing those aesthetics. Well, curves themselves are an invention pretty much from the 60s, right? I mean, the actual mathematical cat curve right? didn't exist in that sense, right? So I think that's also something to be very careful of, but right? these things don't exist in the world, right? The world is just a bunch of uh, molecules. Like, so there's no <laughs> any other description is an invention, right? Like, in a sense. So, um, so I think one has to be very careful in projecting one's view from now on history also and mm -hmm. assuming that this I'm not, I'm not lecturing right it's just, this is wrong so, but myself right, how do you describe that even because the curve itself is, is a strange concept right because it's non-material it's, it's uh, like one dimension it doesn't have any material uh, physical implications in a sense right <clears throat> so it's and it was an invention ultimately to connect the physical and the computational part I mean the, the Numerical and the physical, right? that was the, the computational geometry was invented to bridge between the two, right? between numerical machining and like the actual attempt to, I mean, the design um, design intent, right? Um, so, yeah, maybe you can follow up on that. Yeah, I, um, your question about curves and aesthetic, and so I think, you know, if you look in um, in history, and I want to talk about uh, shell systems, so I think the first time that these shell systems, for example, uh, you know, in, in antiquity and in, in Renaissance, you know, you've had domes and you're very massive masonry or, or concrete domes. But the first time that, for example, these concrete shells came about was about uh, 1920, so very fa uh, very quickly after reinforced concrete came about. So first reinforced concrete had to kind of be invented and experimented with. And then uh, people thought, oh, let's make shells with them. And, you know, they made, as I said, cylindrical shells, etc., etc. And uh, you know, and, and why they use this is because uh, they could span very large distances with very little material. So this was very beneficial to make uh, airplane hangars and like very utilitarian um, spaces. So the first emergence of the shells, if you look at what was their use, it was really not, uh, they were not used because they had a certain aesthetic, they were just used because, uh, you know, they feel you know, very <laughs> dry, you know, they're very economic and very um, efficient. And then I think it's only in the 60s or something that people started picking up that maybe, you know, especially with reinforced concrete, that because reinforced concrete, you know, concrete is in its first state, it's a fluid um, material, so you can actually cast it and it lends itself much better than, for example, wood, which is a very linear material, to making these curved um, surfaces. So in the, I think in the 1960s, it kind of started catching the attention of designers that maybe we could use these type of uh, structural systems more to uh, not only for utilitarian spaces but maybe also for uh, spaces or, or more iconic spaces like uh, large assembly arenas or churches or concert halls or, or things um, like this. So I think there was kind of a high in, in it, you know, the aesthetics of it was then also very valued and um, then I think it has been kind of going down uh, a little bit again, and I think now there's maybe, um, you know, again, a kind of a resurgence of these uh, uh, types of structural systems. But um, I think especially related to the, f the systems that are kind of force modeled, so that, you know, take their shapes due to gravity loads or pre-stress loads or something, I think, and uh, I mean, I might be wrong, but I think that these kind of shapes or this kind of language resonates with people because uh, well in nature you know we op you know 
there are certain shapes, like I think, for example, the Shima Arcosim, it's modeled on a water drop. You know, water drop has a certain shape, which has a certain surface tension, and that's why it has that shape. And so I think uh, that is maybe why this kind of this kind of language maybe resonates, but I wouldn't really call it a particular aesthetic or a particular um, style. Really? I, I, I'm just I surprised. It's just my totally layman opinion. No, I, I just think that to some degree, um, sort of, I, I think I would even say that certain structural systems carry with them certain signatures, right? If you're going to do a compression-only structure, mm -hmm. it needs to have... Um, certain forms to some degree right, right? Mm -hmm. it needs because ultimately like it, it needs to have a certain force distribution mm -hmm. uh, same thing with with you know uh, I don't know um, you know like, yeah like any any sort of uh, vaulting even like post tension systems like they always have in, in my mind at least they have mm -hmm. uh, a sort of look um, whereas I don't, you look at Frank Gehry for instance who's mm -hmm. like you know, I guess in, in my mind, maybe as far as you can go from uh, form found, it's like form invented almost, at least on the, the, the sort of image of uh, Frank Gehry. And his buildings don't resonate with uh, a certain structural uh, system, or maybe they, they resonate with 15 different ones. Well, I mean, they're very much form found, right? Because it's very close linked to the material there. But the whole, all the surfaces are developed directly in form found directly through a very close link to the physical manipulation of lead sheets, mm -hmm. felt, right? cardboard sheets. That's the entire process. Right? So it's an extremely rigorous form finding process. It just doesn't fit into the, as I said mm -hmm. before, moral paradigm. Form finding mm -hmm. means compression only, minimized mm -hmm. material usage. Right? So that's exactly the point. Right? We cannot talk about form finding and say, this is form finding and this is just stuff. Right? Mm. Everybody's, it's just, you have to include the individual and the intent into the form finding process, otherwise you can't judge it, right? Um, so you can dismiss saying like it's wasteful in terms of, and it's inefficient in its material usage due to, in, in terms of structural expression. But if you say that Walt Disney Concert Hall is a waste of material, right, then probably some people would disagree, right? Because the concert hall as a whole has a certain value right, that heavily depends on its form finding through the process of design. Right? I agree the structural look of, I mean the structural feel of the, the skeleton when it was uncladded was painful right? because you'd have like, I don't know, two foot like wide I-beams uh, in the tips of the highest point, right, towering over everything, right? obviously not being particularly useful there structurally, right? so you could probably have optimized in many places. Right? But it's not just, frankly, it's not the Main and the main um, main motivation of creating the structure, right? So it's it's subservient in this case to a formal expression, which is very heavy in that case on the continuity of the flowing of the light on the developable surface strips, right? which is a, a massive effort, a research effort on their side, right? For many years with their own research group and Gary Technology, to deliver these physically found um, sensibilities, sculptural sensibilities, right? So I would certainly argue that there's a need to compress these right, and reduce these, and that was my main motivation in 2001 to move, even invest into that, right? because I was endlessly frustrated with the Gary projects looking behind the facades, and like, why can it be more like Schleich right? without losing its expressiveness? Right? Uh, and then in some of the instances where the two of them worked together, there were interesting results also in the DG Bank and so on. Right? So, but, I refuse to say one is from Fountain and one isn't because it, you cannot exclude 
excludes such things as the designer's intent in the form finding, because then you find nothing. <laughs> Can you um, speak more of the speak more on the what you coined as the moral paradigm and how it plays into your pedagogies as instructors? For instance, Sigrid, in your class. Um, your form finding class. Not only did we learn certain techniques and like model it, but you also had us almost do like historical surveys mm -hmm. of um, like Fray Otto, Candela. Mm -hmm. um, how does that play into? And then actually, you speak of the South German tradition, the Swiss tradition. Um, can you just talk about that as how it plays into your teaching? I mean, Jan Nippers was um, who is actually a, a student of. Schleich and uh, at ELEC, um, and he was presenting in Berlin, I think, two years ago. I was presenting their first, um, I think it was their first Woodbridge, and it's basically a massive, volumetric, massive structure, right? Like with like tons and tons of wood and laminated, stacked up, like massive bridge, right? Which he was basically starting the presentation with. I'm sort of in a bind here, I'm not verbatim here, but like roughly speaking, that he was finding himself in this position where he was basically feeling he was violating his upbringing, right? right? Like, um, <laughs> like standing here presenting this obviously non in the tradition of form found minimized material structures, but there was a way out, right? He left a back door in it because he could explain it to his mentors or whatever in a sense that wood, in, in a sense, is a material which you cannot treat just by its usage alone, right? but you have to include also its overall balance in the, in the, in the ecological footprint because it is a massive carbon sink. Right? So to his argument, what he was doing is his form finding was to maximize the use of the material to the, the, and the, the highest degree, to use as much wood as possible, essentially, because that was the right way to treat this material in the, in, in, in the picture of actually doing an ecological form found um, yeah, project, which meant not to minimize it and mill it away, which created energy use, et cetera, and, and right. waste, but actually make a, a, a permanent carbon sink, which would not go back into the cycle, which would last for 100 years and use as much as possible wood in a form that wouldn't be taken down. Right? So to me, that was like a confirmation, in a sense, slash a, a nice uh, anecdote right, of, of exactly that. I mean, having grown up in southern Germany and being surrounded by these, uh, you could call them sometimes skeletal, sometimes questionably reduced, sometimes um, um, often beautiful and very inspiring, but not as a kill-all paradigm. Right? So as soon as it's used as a weapon against design, uh, without adding an actual another narrative, as Jan Nippers was in this case, right? of course it's somewhat um, with a twink, uh, I guess with a twist or so in that story, but I mean, he said it literally like that one. But I think we have to think holistically and break out of this simplistic, in a sense, equation of, uh, of equating it to minimal material use is the best mm -hmm. thing and the only thing an engineer should um, uh, inspire for, to, because the world is too complex for that one. Mm -hmm. And it also ex excludes too many problems mm -hmm. from, um, um, from the actual um, uh, yeah, capabilities of engineers and designers if they don't fit into that equation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's more dangerous um, uh, because I think we also have to find new solutions, like two problems that are stuck in certain solution patterns right, of basically the same responses. Like if you ask you if I ask you for a building, I make a building with minimal use, as opposed to educating it about let's say transportation possibilities or changing mobility things or behavioral patterns right, to make that whole building disappear, let's say, right? or break up into several sets of programs right, to basically educate clients or. or um, uh, the, the, the public at large 
into a more holistic modeling of problems right? that do not solve the problem but explain and re restructure the problem in a way that you could form find let's say the very thing you're trying to optimize away or shift it into a different uh, uh, design realm and I feel that's more much more needed now mm -hmm. than let's say solely which was very important right and is continues to be so important right? but I don't think it covers the challenges we're facing mm -hmm. yeah so um the reason why I have my students look at uh, you know, presidents from the past is, first of all, I think it's important to understand how these systems um, work. As I mentioned before, you know, you, you normally you don't learn about this in an engineering training. I think definitely also not in architectural training. So I think to be able to capture how they structurally work just with a few equations, I think is very important. So you don't have to actually go back to very complicated finite element models. Uh, to analyze them, but then I think there's also what Axel is saying is that um, the I think the project you know if you look for example at uh, you know the work that uh, Felix Candela was doing or something you know he he used uh, one type of um, geometric shape and re repeated that many times, but I think the world that he was uh, you know the social and political context that he was working for was a lot simpler than the projects uh, today, and so I think the the design briefs today, you know, require specialists from different uh, kind of areas, and I think that also is also reflected um, in in the design that's kind of uh, required. So, so what would be the so what is the trajectory now? Say with, with what it is that you teach. I went to a lecture at the engineering school uh, a while back. I forget who the guy was that was teaching. Lingling. Hmm? Lingling. No. The um, active denim person. Oh, Lee. Uh, yeah, Julian Lee Norris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it seems like it. Some of the stuff that he was doing um, was moving into much more, uh, say, active systems. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, systems that that maintain uh, the say dynamic character that I at least associate with sort of the 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 finding technique. Mm -hmm. um, so so using materials to continuously find states while mm -hmm. you know already being uh, building is that something that's sort of being invested in as, as uh, a trajectory or is it still leaning towards more static uh, models in engineering yeah oh in engineering this is a or at least in structural engineering this is a rev revolutionary idea we do not want things uh, to move in general you know we want things to stay where they are uh, we usually, um, when we design, we design against deflections. We design against deformations. So, the work that he's uh, present or that he was presenting is really a really big say, a step, mind step. Um, that I'm not really sure whether engineers are ready for that kind of. System. I also don't know whether they work for all kinds. You know, I think it's very easy to criticize like how would this work for. You know this application or these applications because you know often um, engineers work on, on um, problems that are that, that require very static um, solutions. But uh, yeah, this is a very revolutionary idea to actually have your material inform the behavior of your uh, system. You know, usually, the, the we we usually select the material. You know, we, well, structural engineers don't really have that mater many materials that they usually select from, so you know they select one of the five materials that you can use with, and the codes very much pres uh, prescribe how a building or a bridge should um, should perform. But actually, there are very um, 
a lot of very interesting things happening. So I have one PhD student now, he's working on suspended polyester rope bridges. You know, polyester rope is a material that's not used, you know, we use concrete or steel or maybe timber and masonry if you're really adventurous. Um, but, you know, if you start looking at other uh, materials, like for example, this uh, polyester rope, they are very flexible and they ex extend a lot. So, yeah, that's already something we don't like, right? We don't want to stand on the bridge, which then, you know, deforms a lot when you're standing on it. But actually, we're seeing that if we relax some of the constraints that are in our codes according to which we have to work, if we relax some of them, or if we go actually deeper into the analysis, because these codes will say, you know, the frequencies have to be this, if you don't satisfy these frequencies, then you must look at accelerations, so nobody ever does that, you know, we may just make sure that the bridge satisfies these um, frequencies, and the way to do that is to add more mass or dampers or something, but, you know, if you go into that, well, let's start looking at, let's accept that we have large deformations, you know, frequencies that are not good. Let's start looking at the accelerations. Actually, very interesting things start happening to your structural systems. You know, you can actually go to very efficient um, systems. But um, And so I think, you know, there is some trend, but I think not a lot of engineers are comfortable going into um, that zone of having... Um, you know, looking at materials that exhibit certain characteristics which might, for example, you know, lead to very large deformations and then doing something positive mm -hmm. uh, with that. Usually it's like, oh my God, no, look what's going to happen. We cannot have that. Let's add mass or let's add that. But let that kind of behavior happen and then maybe reinterpret, you know, how could this be used in a positive way? Because I know that's, that you do a bunch of work on, on that sort of thing, Axel. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, ambition is great. Uh, the results are small, <laughs> but ultimately, uh, the the idea that um, I mean, every material works out in response. There's no such thing as a static thing. That's mm -hmm. just pushing things out of your cognitive realm again. Right? So I can push on this table, and it seems rigid, but but it's flexing. It's just I don't sense it, right? Because it's minimal compared to what I'm doing to it. But if it were whatever, two millimeters thin, like it, um, was it Ishigami, uh, showing it like then it would basically be unusable in a sense, tear this only and open the bridge on the um, on the waterfront in Brooklyn that crosses over, I think, some, um, I think it's a, it's a highway or goes up to the highway anyway. But it's a it's basically a, a wood bridge completely with an underlying big truss, right, a triangular truss. And if you walk over it, if more than three people walk together, the thing starts swaying massively <laughs> to the point where it's extremely dis discomforting. Right? Mm -hmm. So I was shocked, like in a positive sense and in a negative sense, that it was actually open because right? mm -hmm. uh, it reminded me of the Millennium Bridge in, in London. Right, it's a similar violent mm -hmm. sway, right, and it's a much shorter span and much less extreme in a sense. Right, but it was a reminder that yeah, it becomes an experience experienceable. Mm -hmm load case. I mean, you are becoming part of the mm -hmm. system, you understand the system, the response to what you do, right? it's not a sort of abused sort of thing. You get some respect of it, right, because mm -hmm. you see it, you enter it, you realize two spans act very different, like they're different spans, different length, etc. Right? So I feel there has to be something in that, just as a tree you climb on, where it may sag or crack mm -hmm. or so on, you kind of appreciate I guess the things that uh, respond to your presence uh, in a different way than if it's a sort of yeah, a block of concrete that's so massively out of your league in terms of <laughs> mass, <laughs> deformity, etc. So, uh, which I think 
yeah, in architecture has certainly also created its own problem, right? That the, the, the ignoring of the individual, uh, in a sense, by shutting out, by see any human uh, response, right? Which can lead maybe more to a vandalism type response, right? Because you want to anything to have like take a take a stand or a response to your actions or presence, right? So if graffiti is the only way you can be heard or made be felt, right? Then maybe that is uh, is it, right? But I think in these responsive structures. Or everything is responsive, right? But if it's in the domain of your human sort of senses, right? I think on the one hand, things get more fragile, but on the other hand, I think you become more aware of what is going on, right? In the sense of a finding or educational sense, right? Um, I think you treat things potentially more delicate if you're not uh, uh, abusive, right? And I think in terms of all the uh, all the sort of discussions around resources and reductions and so on, I think um, of, of usage of material, I prefer, let's say, a system in which you become a sort of knowledgeable participant in, right, to understand the trade-offs, right, uh, physically, let's say, right. And then the other part is my interest in embodied computation, right, mm -hmm. to move the design process out of its shell, right, and then the product is the other shell, right, and actually create links between the two such that we don't stop designing once we have produced the thing, right, but carry over the design process into the objects that we use, which is happening in engineering, right. Uh, like I mentioned, always the example of the quadcopters or by uh, Rafael D'Andreo, for instance, right, who has developed these uh, quite impressive algorithmic systems which are uploaded and communicate to the quadcopters. If you clip their wings, right, to a certain degree, right, you throw the same quadcopter up again, it stumbles initially, then stabilizes again by sense of feedback and adaptation of its sense of itself within the world. Right? So any other object we would have built would have crashed right, or would have broken down. Right? So can we basically also create structures that have similar resilience, right? They basically find a new way, just as a tree will not immediately collapse when you chop off a branch, right? Or part of the root is uh, going to die. As long as they're way out of that, right, it will try. It has a certain resilience to it, right, by remapping, reinventing its existence, right? Um, so I think we just have to continue, and that, that I think, requires to, induce in, like, to carry over the form-finding, concept-finding, whatever, into the actual implemented structure, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for, for movement as in an effect, right? But as a, as a, as a sensibility that once you put the thing out in the world, it's not over, right? It's actually beginning, right? Design process begins because things happen that you may not have anticipated, right? Conditions change, right? Things degrade, things fail, right? New things are invented with it, right? So to me, that's the main motivation of this whole exercise, right? To basically move, to, to stop pretending there's such a thing as design, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the world, right? Uh, but the thing never stops, and why should we cut that sort of uh, connection? Perhaps the form finds itself sent it off. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying, it, it does, it, I, I think during a review of mine, I used the word empathy to describe hopefully similar things because that sounded quite good. Uh, and I don't, the, the result was, was less than positive, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is okay. I had certain people on my review that, you know, sort of see things um, differently, yes. Uh, but, but no, it was a good was a, but just it was great, great result. Just could have been much more in a sense of, well, of the of a full agreement with the, with the impetus, right? So that, that it was an appreciation. Yeah, I thought I, I thought it would lead to some sort of aha moment, but it led to more of a hmm. But <laughs> 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 uh, that yeah, it's okay. But uh, empathy, you said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was my word for the semester. But I, I'm very interested in what you're saying, uh, particularly. The, both of your responses to the dynamic structures, which 
I think seem to be a little bit uh, different, whereas Axel seems to like really not care about um, sort of any sort of constraints. Because um, dynamic doesn't exist as a, as a yeah, concept. Yeah, There's I mean, no it, such it, thing as dynamic versus static. Right. Everything is by default uh, dynamic. And, and yeah. I guess, Sigrid, because you're working within uh, an engineering school and an engineering environment, actually showing that things um, sort of satisfy certain criteria becomes extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does seem that um, using, I guess, certain finite element analysis techniques, using form-finding techniques uh, that are, say, very contemporary as opposed to some of the um, sort of Isler or, or Gaudi sort of, okay, let's take, you know, build a physical model and somehow that's enough and everything, everyone's okay with building it, that there's a period of, uh, I would say, like a convergence now mm -hmm. um, where for, or, uh, finite element techniques are, I guess, legally, they're, they're legitimate, mm -hmm. right? You can actually prove that a structure will stand and get it stamped and go ahead with the building of it. Does that change the way that um, the subject is taught or the way that it's theorized now that right. you know you can actually take it to the next step? It's not stuck in, say, a theorization of, like, well, if only we could yeah. do this. Like, now you can actually say, well, we can. Yeah. But I, I think the challenge there is, you know, so with this, I think people uh, attribute too much power to the finite element no, not to you. <laughs> analysis to the to the numerical techniques, to the uh, algorithms that we develop, etc., etc., because they're only as good as what we think is going to happen. And so, for example, with these uh, suspended polyester rope bridges, you know, we've been developing very sophisticated nonlinear um, algorithms to calculate them. And actually, one of those bridges was built uh, in Morocco, and we've been out there to test them that, you know, our results work with the results from the bridge, and they don't work totally as we expect. And so I think that's also what um, Axel was saying is, you know, there's one thing, uh, the perfect kind of numerical model which proves that something works, but actually when you go out in Morocco, you see that the, bills, the bridge is built slightly skew, you know, that uh, one of the pre-stress cables, when they were pre-stressing it, you know, the, the machine broke, so they didn't totally pre-stress it to the level that it was supposed to be. That means that the frequencies are not exactly the same, or not actually, you know, they're kind of shifting into the more dangerous uh, zone. So I think, and, and, and that link in engineering is completely gone. You know, we do, I mean, I've worked in a design office, you know, we do finite element modeling, you know, we calculate it, um, then it gets built, and then there's hardly ever any check, only on the, for example, suspension bridges, you know, the, these are very, potentially very flexible uh, systems where you feel, um, you know, where if you walk on it, your um, frequency might interfere with the frequency of the bridge, and this potentially dangerous, might eventually break. Only these very suspended systems, people will go and do physical tests, you know, once the thing is built, in the field to see, okay, are we getting the frequencies that we thought in our perfect finite element model? No, we are not. Okay, then, you know, we have to do something to this. But the testing of structures, like in, in the time, you know, you asked me before about, um, you know, that in my course I asked people to look at works of, you know, Felix Candela or, you know, before, people were testing their structures Basically, I'm thinking about, for example, the Mannheim Grichel, which also is also, uh, I don't know, 1967. You know, Grichel made out of flat uh, timber grid, which is then kind of molded into shape. And put, you know, people had people had built hanging models, you know, which doesn't 
totally approximated behavior because it completely uh, neglects the bending that goes into the system. And so they were, you know, they were putting up these large systems for uh, events. So the, you know, the event had an opening date, so the system had to be ready. Uh, and so the way to really test this by physical tests, so they hung like barrels with water or with, you know with with weight in it to see how the system is behaving. That is now totally cut out of uh, you know we do not uh, prove this. You know if a tall building goes up or a bridge goes up, you know people don't really. Uh, in some countries, I think they still prove this, but that cut between the kind of numerical perfect world where we assume that the damping coefficient is so and so and etc. etc. Uh, and then the verification, not only verification to see whether you find that element is actually correct, but also structures kind of behave differently with time. So for example, with timber, you know, these um, um, actively bent systems uh, would actually relax us with time. So after time, you know, stress is kind of dissipated through that. And so if you would take in a Mannheim Grütscher, you know, if you, you could make a finite element model and look at it, um, but you know, if you were to take measurements of strain on the shell, on the actual shell, they would be very different and I think that link is totally lost um, you know so we think that we can predict everything numerically digitally but actually the way that this system really behaves is you know, quite different what do you think is at stake with sort of losing the um, the, the, the modeling aspect uh, or the physical modeling aspect I know actually you um, teach a lot of Modeling and, and modeling techniques. Um, mm -hmm. So, what what happens when that disappears from uh, the the sort of engineering? Well, I think what happens is that basically, then you cannot really do this more um, sophisticated. You know, then you you know to make sure that your your finite element model matches uh, the behavior of the thing as built in the real world. And in the real world, you have then you have to make or design your system so it's very uh, big, you know, use a lot of materials and don't really go towards these more sophisticated uh, systems, especially if you're, if you're talking about uh, curved systems, you know, they're so, de uh, they're so de uh, I'd say, dependent on the right geometry, the right material properties, so if there's not the check back, uh, you know, this might be quite dangerous. Yeah, I, mean, I think the calibration is crucial right, because both of um, both are abstractions, right? Yeah. Uh, and the real is a very, very uh, um, malleable concept as well. Right? Like when when is something real? Because right? it's if it's implemented, it still is. Um, is uh, dependent on how you judge it or how you evaluate it, right? Um, but there's this uh, interesting story to the um, Los Alamos uh, labs uh, of nuclear atomic research mm -hmm. right, um, in the US, which there was a symposium at uh, MIT, I guess like maybe six years ago or seven years ago, where Sherry Turkle invited different individuals around this simulation realm. And, and it was a scientist from Los Alamos, it was a fighter jet pilot, it was um, uh, like a few engineers, designers, and so uh, and problem that was discussed by the engineer, uh, by the physicist um, from Los Alamos was that uh, she mentioned that they are facing this crisis that uh, with the nuclear ban treaty, uh, nuclear um, weapons test ban treaty, uh, they were approaching this point where the last physicist who had actually exploded one of their uh, theoretical models in real life right, was about to retire. Right? So the entire basically construct of the lab, which was is built on the physical, on the, on the theoretical modeling, right? 
and then the validation through a test, which is crucial, right? no matter how sophisticated they are, because things are working very differently, nonetheless, right, was in danger, I should say, because basically we have mm -hmm. a weapon stockpile, which is not the best thing to have around, right? If you know certain how it behaves, right? that essentially over the coming decades will be invalidated, right? Mm -hmm. So, which could mean they're not working at all, right? It could mean they explode spontaneously, which could mean they explode some other ways you don't expect, right? Which many people may say, great, then we finally solved the problem of nuclear, <laughs> nuclear war, etc. But uh, the problem is just, it's an indication of uh, this, this, I think, the, the wrongful assumption that we as civilization have moved far enough mm -hmm. along to simulate and model the world, right? Mm -hmm. And basically be able to predict anything uh, from it, right? Uh, which in weather systems and all these things, right, is, is you can experience it every day, right? It's not true, right? You can get very close to a meteorological prediction, right? But as the systems are more complex, it is, it is by definition impossible to get an exact match, right? And even in very simplistic things like a, a structural beam or so, there's still differences, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, because of the models built in abstraction, right? That's always the case, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's very important to, to calibrate the two and that also allow for discoveries in these like moments of mismatching right, or noise or so, which I think as a designer you always find invention, potential invention in those, right, because you realize a misunderstanding or a gap of understanding may actually offer an opportunity to add something to the in, in a different way. Right? Um, to a physicist or to a, let's say, structural engineer where there's a life-death type thing, right? Those may be less exciting, but uh, <laughs> yet still they're crucial to actually educate you. Right? So hopefully they happen in realms where you are not, uh, where, where the consequences are not catastrophic, right? but they lead to an improvement of the understanding. Right? So, anyway. final question, which is normally the first question, but I find that in an interview it actually works much better when it's asked last, uh, which is sort of the, the the definition question. So if you can sort of give as a a relatively concise, say, definition of what form finding is, um, and I guess given our conversation, that would make it maybe slightly more difficult. <laughs> I already did it in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Series, that, so that, I'm not going to repeat. You're, you're covered. Um, I think I will give a very structural. Uh, yeah, that would be definition. great. So, uh, form finding for me is uh, finding a static equilibrium shape where you start from an initial arbitrary geometry and certain boundary conditions and a specific load and then you systems develop a shape um, that satisfy all these conditions. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Axel Killian and Sigrid Adriansens. The interviewer was Ishai Yudekovitz. The producer was Hans Tersak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.